and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, Ben. I hope you've enjoyed a, a lovely bank holiday weekend, our second one of May. I think there are three in total. That was our second one we just had. It was fantastic. The coronation was absolutely magnificent. And I know this will sound like something I'm making up, <laughs> but at the crucial moment of the ceremony we were watching at my parents' house, my three-year-old daughter started shouting, Vivat, Vivat, which was a very proud parenting moment um, and a magnificent day for the country. Um, but it's still in the headlines days later because of the question of the arrests of the Republic protesters. Um, and today we have our very first guest on That's Debatable, uh, our colleague Tim Cruddus, who could not be a better, uh, or I have to say more fortuitously timed guest, uh, because Tim has a long, long background um, career in the police, uh, in the policing of big state royal events, such as the coronation that, that we've just seen. Um, and uh, Tim is now a case officer for the FSU on the front line of the free speech culture wars um, and will be able to offer us a fantastic insight into the operational decision making that goes on at the coronation, um, the decisions behind the making of arrests like uh, like we saw on Saturday morning. And we're going to have a discussion today about uh, all of those issues about the right to protest, the difference between the right to free speech and the right to protest, how far they overlap. Uh, so, Tim, I, I feel like I've set you up. To, I promised quite a lot of you, um, but it's a pleasure to welcome you onto the podcast. Yeah, no pressure. Thanks, um, Ben. Yeah, and I'm privileged to be your first guest, although I'm a member of uh, staff rather than a, a well-known face. It uh, it's, means a lot to me to be the first guest. And by complete coincidence, you might not be aware of this, but today is uh, my one-year anniversary of joining uh, the FSU so um, it's a special treat for that to be uh, invited on your esteemed podcast thanks oh well, happy anniversary I, I dare say we've kept you quite busy yes absolutely it's been non-stop and it's been, it's been a great it's been a great year and um, it's good work that um, that we do uh, in FSU and um, I'm looking forward to continuing all things being equal <laughs> So Tim's day-to-day work is about helping our our members. Um, so that's that's the work that Tim and I are doing most of the time is helping people who, uh, you know, be it a university student who's in trouble on their course or an academic or a speaker in an event who's been no platformed. Um, so we have a huge range of different situations, um, and and we've dealt now with more than two thousand cases in three years of the FSU uh, being up and running. Um, so we are up to our eyeballs in in cases. But Tom, you worked out some good data for us, didn't you, the other day? You 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 delved into how often we're successful and what the outcomes are for our members. And was it seven in seventy three percent of cases? Is that right? That we not have not quite that high. It's seventy percent uh, of our cases where where we, we will, know we what the outcome that. is. Sorry, Ben. We will edit that. Seventy one percent. I think I said on the radio. Seventy one percent of our cases um are successful, are favorable. Um where we know what the outcome is. And and I think we were really when we pulled all the data together and put it on one page, very pleased to see it up that high. And and as to explain last week, we do have um a lot of cases which are unresolved, um, where the people are you know, come to us and then disappear quite quickly for whatever reason. But where yeah. we know what what happened, um, 
we 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 get seventy percent. What I was worried about last week, and it'd be really interesting to see what what Tim's reaction is, is whether is the fact that state intervention, i.e., protests and arrests, was on the up. And I haven't yet adjusted. I haven't yet adjusted for the weekend we've just had. But yeah, state intervention seems to be seems to be on the up in our data anyway. So to Tim, with your um, former police officer's hat on, is the right to protest now abolished in Britain? Uh, no, it isn't. And um, it's interesting that uh, Tom says about the uh, state intervention. I think uh, a lot of the figures we've seen on state intervention is relating to the police finding the policing of the internet an easy win. And that's trying not to be too disrespectful to the police, but they've got uh, bigger priorities than that. And I think that's starting to be reined in now. There's There's a general acceptance uh, amongst senior police officers and certainly the Home Secretary, that um, the police should be leaving that alone and um, essentially policing the, the streets and not the tweets. That is now quite well accepted uh, amongst senior ranks, but it's not necessarily been accepted by uh, the College of Policing, which is unfortunately has a uh, quite a big influence on police training, police guidelines and the non-crime hate incident regime that you've discussed in detail on previous podcast so i hope to see state intervention dropping off when it comes to interference with free speech on the basis that that that's now an accepted thing and that and that um the social media comments are not something the police should be bothering themselves about but we can talk a, a bit more about the coronation and the the arrests that have just happened, if, if you wish. Uh, that's a slightly different matter, I think. Well, I mean, Tim, when you mentioned the fact that the senior police officers are, are, are kind of getting getting it a bit more and the College of Policing doesn't seem to, when we talk about freedom of expression, I, as well as the senior police officers, what about the, the police officers on the ground, Tim? Do they understand freedom of So I think of almost like three three cohorts of people, the College of Policing, the most senior police officers, and then the police officers that we actually sort of come into, uh, bump into when we're on the streets. Um, do they get it most, as much? Yeah, I think most practitioners are embarrassed by the fact that they're being asked to knock on people's doors on the basis of something they've said on, on Twitter. They've got far better things to do. The slight worrying thing is that, as you know, there's just been a massive recruitment drive and they've recruited 20,000 police officers and the majority of them are going to be young, less experienced officers with no disrespect men. And they have gone through a set of, of training training programmes um, which include the sort of social justice ideology, unfortunately. And that's been, not exclusively, but in many cases, uh, that has coloured their perception of what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And they tend, they're going to react to that. And it needs to be, and that needs to be corrected. That needs to, to stop in the training regime. And it also needs to be corrected in those that have come through. And uh, they need more freedom of speech training. As, as you know, one of our, Colleagues wrote a, a, a thorough report on on the fact that the police have very little training on freedom of speech, if any at all, but they have loads of input on uh, equality, diversity and in- inclusivity uh, training. And that balance is too far in it, it's weighted towards the, the latter and it needs to it needs to be corrected. It is slowly but surely turning around, but it is it's a big tanker to turn. 
Tim, just as a practical point, going back to the coronation and, and uh, quite early on on Saturday morning when these protesters were arrested, I think they they basically opened the door of their van and they were getting their placards up. Um, and so it was, it was really very much nipped in the bud by the police. You have experience of policing these massive, massive royal events. Um, I mean, what's that like? There must be an immense pressure overridingly, first of all, to get the event right to make sure it all goes ahead and then of course there's there's now been this this backtracking from the met police and and this sort of countervailing pressure to protect uh, the right to protest but as a practical matter it must be very difficult to determine when somebody is going to be just waving a placard or where they're, where they're going to be seeking to actually disrupt the event and so that seems to be what the what the nub of the issue is um, with the Republic protest, is the Republic saying, well, no, we were just going to peacefully protest, as is their, their right to do. Um, but the police on the ground are making a determination about where they're actually they're going to disrupt it. Yeah, well, it's the answer to your question is it's impossible. It's impossible to know which group are going to behave themselves, uh, which group are going to stay within the, the boundaries of what, what might have been agreed with the police and which individuals in that group are going to take it upon themselves to go further. I mean, the, the event most closely matching this that I worked on myself was the Royal Wedding uh, of William and Kate. And that was a huge operation. And this and the coronation was even bigger. And when you think that this is being televised uh, to millions, if not billions, across across the world, the pressure on the, on the gold and silver commanders from the Home Secretary would have been immense to make sure that event went smoothly. You can only imagine what the what it would look like if the road was blocked or people did manage to, to lock on in the in the way of the horses or, or were determined to throw things and disrupt that. It doesn't bear thinking about. So the the fact that the police did act proactively and they did, interestingly, they used the powers that have just come in uh, under the new Public Order Act um, 2023. They came in uh, less than a week before the coronation. So they were working on new powers. They were under great pressure to make sure nothing went wrong. The fact that they may have overreached on their proactivity regarding the search of the van and, and the arrest that followed will will quickly fade into the memory, I think, compared to the success of the event. You can't have it both ways. If the police had failed to use those powers and something had happened such that the actual the actual parade was stopped in its tracks, uh, the fallout would have been um, far greater than the, the the fallout that's now evident from the you know from the police's sort of apology, if you like. I haven't seen the apo- any apology, but it's uh, apparently they've they've uh, expressed regret at the decision they made to arrest the uh, but, uh, the people in the van. But Tim, I mean that that change to the Public Order Act 2023 that happened. I think it was as you say a week before. I just wonder, do you think there was time? To digest it, it almost feels like there wasn't even time for Parliament properly to to, to scrutinise it. Was there then operationally time for the the police officers on the ground and the commanders to digest that and work out what that meant for the day? Because I think it was convenient for the leaders to to push that through uh, when they pushed it through, but it was really difficult for people on the ground to work out what that meant in practice. I think uh, well, there was plenty of time for parliamentary scrutiny because it'd been a it had been in bill stage for and gone through all those stages. It was just I think it was just once it finished those stages, it was it was pushed through in time uh, for the coronation. Also, 
it's I don't think it's true to say that the police on the ground wouldn't have had time to prepare. There's a, the the public order unit in the police is, is highly specialised and it's run by uh, golds and silvers and bronzes that that do public order all the time. So they they knew what the powers were. They would have been prepared to use them. They did uh, the search of the vehicle, the, the Republic Group, that was done under the new powers, and it's uh, it basically allows the police to predict serious disruption and search for articles that would contribute to that. And the actual arrests, as far as I am aware, were for um, the possession of of uh, or articles for locking on. So that is now prohibited. So you can. So the offences was going equipped with articles to lock on and it and there was some debate as to whether the straps that they found were or the um the ties that they found were for locking on or whether they were just to keep the signs together in bundles and i think retrospectively the police have realized that those ties were probably not for locking on and that's why they've uh, retracted a little bit but um I, I do think on a wider point that uh, we should be careful in thinking that there's a smooth continuum between free speech and protest. I don't think that continuum is smooth. I think there's a big difference uh, between protest, especially disruptive protest, and the principles of free speech. And I can expand on that if you if you wish. Or Well, there are, two, there are two different articles of the European Convention, I think. There's Article 10, which is freedom of expression, and then Article 11, which is freedom of assembly. Uh, so they are distinguished in in that kind of context. So, yeah, I, I can see. I would argue they're distinguished um, a lot more than that in, in as much as free speech does not impinge on other people's rights in 99% of cases, and therefore it's not an issue for the police. Certainly in the FSU, we don't think that free speech is an issue uh, for police to get involved in. And with the exception of uh, harassment and targeted abuse and... There are laws dealing with that already. On the other side of the thing, disruptive protest almost always does interfere with other people's rights. So, if you're going to uh, lock, your, if you're going to glue yourself to the road, or you're going to occupy uh, central London for weeks on end, as Extinction Rebellion did, for example, costing thirty-seven million pounds to police, that is a that is uh, an impingement on other people's right to go about their business and so on. So. I think there's a distinct difference between the way in which the police deals with free speech, which in our opinion should be uh, hardly at all, and the way in which they deal with protests, which in in my opinion should be robustly when it comes to these sort of disruptive events. What struck me about, about the arrest was that we've had for, for months, or indeed for years now, these extremely disruptive eco-protest, people lying in the way of traffic, um, attacking artworks and all the rest of it. And I think the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of the British public would say um, peaceful protest is one thing, but obstructing people going about their day-to-day lives or or damaging or vandalising artwork or whatever is completely beyond the pale. Um, And I think people have been, uh, well, certainly I've been very frustrated watching police failing to deal with that in an assertive way because it, they're so unclear, it seems, seems to be so unclear about what the proper response to those situation is. Um, and there's been this great building up of emotion and frustration about that. And it seems to me that that has now been misapplied to the Republic protest where they were 
if, if you're to believe their account of it, they were going to see what they've done millions of times before and turn up and wave some placards about um, and and make their political views known. So it seems to me that the police haven't behaved in a proportionate way. But I, I take the point in practically for the officers on the ground dealing with this momentous uh, security public order challenge. You know, it's very easy for me to just say, well, they haven't struck the right balance in this particular case. Um, but I, I, I think it, I think, unfortunately, they haven't got this aspect of the policing right, even though everything else about the organisation of the day was was unimprovable. Um, and I have to say as well that there's the free speech, the right to protest point. Um, but also as a monarchist, I think actually it's it's not great that three days later, the top story on the BBC News website this morning, um, or was it the second, I can't remember, but right near the top of the running order, um, is about these arrests and Graham Smith and co., um, spending the day um, under police custody or in police custody. Um, so I, I do think it's not helpful for the monarchy and I do think it, it, is, not, it is not proportionate ultimately what, what's happened. But there has been this, this growing uh, frustration, as I say, about other types of protests that are very disruptive, that aren't protected by Article 11. Um, I, think that, I think that there's an element to which which media platforms are going to keep this story at the top uh, on the head, at the headlines, and which are are going to keep the coronation on the headlines? So that's a matter. Yeah, of, that's true. Uh, polis, polis, you know, the political views of the press. I do think that the pressure that was that was put on the police to make sure everything went smoothly probably did in this in this instance uh, cause a little bit of overreach on the Republic Group, who generally speaking have been quite well-behaved. And on this occasion, they wanted the visibility of the yellow placards in Trafalgar mm. Square so that they were on the route so that the media could pick them up. And they did get that. However, I do, I would say <clears throat> that um, had the police got this wrong, had they not searched the, the van or and there'd been a, a load of stuff in there which, which, which then led to highly disruptive protests, the, the amount of stick they would have got would be, as I mentioned before, a uh, hundred times worse than the uh, stick they're currently getting. So it's all... I was just going to say, I go back to that Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act 2022, which I think worries me almost more than the Public Order Act, because that um, this distinction between items that you can use to lock in, which you know I, I, I can understand, versus elements of last year's act, which are about causing not just public nuisance, but even serious annoyance is deemed to you know to be captured in some way by that act that worries me because obviously protests are meant to be annoying they're not meant to be a nuisance so i, I think there is a line um when people who desperately need to get to hospital can't get through because the ambulance is being stopped um and actually lives are being put at risk by people gluing themselves in the road and everyone listening will probably have a different view on what where that line is because it's a it's a giant gray line in the middle what worries me is that that serious annoyance reference in that act and i just wonder what you thought of of that tim and whether that is a slightly different dimension to this yeah again it's all it's all a matter of perspective isn't it there's some very controversial bits and pieces in this new public order act uh, that's just come in including the buffer zones around abortion clinics and so on and and the the de- we've had this debate on one of our uh, speakeasies, which uh, I was on the panel for, and it's it's a, a very complicated argument between the rights of people to do something which is ostensibly peaceful, 
uh, non-violent, and and the rights of people to go about, uh, for example, um, seek seek uh, treatment at a clinic without having to run a gauntlet, whatever that gauntlet looks like. And the same thing with noise, uh, Tom. I think if people should be able to make lots of noise in a public place and so on, but if people are outside your house making lots of noise day in day out because you're a politician who they disagree with or whatever, then it. it it's all a matter of perspective. And I think some of these powers are brought in to deal with the extremes. They're not intended to deal with peaceful protests. They're, they're there to deal with the extremes of, of a prolonged disruption, the like of which uh, we were talking about before. And even, I, th- I would argue, the staunchest free speech advocates, the three of us included, would probably uh, be screaming out for the, the sort of Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil protests to be dealt with properly by the police you know let me know if you disagree with that i'd be very interested but um i think the general public have had enough of it and i think the powers that need that have come in to deal with that are broadly speaking uh, quite welcome but yes we must we must keep an eye on the police and where they overreach uh, laws in order to restrict what we consider to be peaceful non-controversial protests then yes we then we need to get uh, you know, we need to be on that uh, as we are. It sounds like there's going to be a legal battle. It, it seems like um, Republic are minded to to pursue the the police for wrong for the rest. Um, at least as things look uh, today, we're recording on Tuesday afternoon, um, so maybe there'll be more clarity by the time you're listening to this on Wednesday. Uh, but it, it seems like that this issue will continue to go on and on. And um, I think Graham Smith as well has said that uh, wherever King Charles goes. Now, there will be a Republic protest, and I don't know how viable that threat is. The Republic movement is not gigantic, um, but they obviously have a, a bee in their bonnet after what's yeah. happened on Saturday. Um, I think the point about, about irritation, um, the, the trouble with that is it's so subjective. Um, I, I personally, no offence to Republican listeners, um, I, I personally find most advocacy for a Republic quite irritating but i absolutely defend the right of people to that point of view i mean i happen to think that if the monarchy survived the new model army and oliver cromwell and the levelers it probably is going to survive graham smith and republic um and that 50 people waving yellow placards about is is just part of the raucous commotion of national life and is not going to bring down the monarchy and um and i think as as we talked about a bit before um it's not good for freedom of speech freedom of protest or the monarchy, if we have this tangled up story going on and on and on, and then if there's a if there's a legal case mounted by a republic, um, it just seems like something that, that that could have been avoided. But one of the um, one of the things that's irritated me a bit over the last few days is when this happened on uh, Saturday morning. The Free Speech Union had immediately put out a statement saying it was a pity this had happened, and uh, an arrest like that needs to be proportionate. All the points that we've just been talking about. Um, and yet you still have people, certain people on parts of the left saying none of the people on the right who care about free speech have said anything about this issue. Where's the free speech union? Why is nothing being said? I've replied to two emails this morning, actually, of people saying, why haven't you commented on this? Where's your statement about this? Uh, you're hypocritical. You don't really care about freedom of speech because you said nothing about people who who, uh, who you disagree with. And actually, we, we've been very vocal about the fact that arrests like this need to be proportionate and there's a there's a difference between extinction rebellion and somebody quietly waving a placard um 
and yet you have this um this this presumption that because that part of the left that doesn't believe in universal free speech can't can't apply the the value of free speech universally that people on the right or the center or from any other political tradition also will fail to uphold that right universally when actually i don't think any of us have any problem whatsoever in defending the rights of people we don't we don't agree with or don't particularly like and we need to keep pushing that message ben i i don't know what else we can do we you're absolutely right i was watching twitter i was watching our responses to to this over the weekend and we absolutely support i mean we don't even agree amongst ourselves i am not necessarily i wasn't necessarily that interested in the coronation over the weekend i'm i'm not sure i'm a republican but um i'm the best bit for me of the coronation was some of the uh the fun instagram memes that were, were going around sort of uh, taking the mickey out of it that's where i come from i'm not that i'm not that excited by it uh although it is something we haven't seen for 70 years so i'm in i'm in too much we don't we don't all agree amongst us but we all agree i want to see protests at, at something like that i want to see the republicans able to hold their placards and able to to, to have some form of protest i recognize the this risk of horses going mad and and slamming into folks at the side of the mall that that i get and and you got lots and lots of people on a very public day um but yeah i i, I just wondered actually i asked myself would this would this have been allowed to have happened in this way in the usa because with the first amendment we really do state or they really do slam together freedom of expression and freedom to protest in the same you have a first amendment protected right that has been tested again and again and again. And I wonder how it would have played out in the US. But that's just a, an interesting well, question I ask myself. To such extremes that the Westboro Baptist Church demonstrating outside the funerals of soldiers who've been killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. They, they yeah. take it up to, up to that limit. Yeah. yeah. I think the debate will, will rage on and on and on about uh, what's, the balance, what's the balance between one and the other. I think the, in, a, in a free speech world, the debate, it's... I think it's almost um, agreed that free speech shouldn't be policed because saying things doesn't isn't hurtful to others in the majority. But protest is a different matter. I think there's a there's definitely a balance to be struck between the rights of one group to do what they want to do outside abortion clinics or in the road or on the M25 or wherever, and the rights of other people to not have that disruption and whilst everyone's um saying where they stand on the monarchy i'm a, i'm a big fan of the monarchy <laughs> i'm in a minority um, <laughs> <laughs> i'm uh i'm with ben in not really understanding what republic are after it's like the monarchies uh, as far as i'm concerned it, it seems to uh, pay for itself it brings in more money in tourism than it costs uh it it it's uh it runs initiatives such as duke of edinburgh scheme and the prince of wales all the things that it does are laudable and i just think you know leave them alone type thing is where, where i come from with the republic but i do agree with you both that it's perfectly acceptable for that group to have their place in the square with the placards and to be fully visible to the cameras and the bbc you know some people have criticized the bbc for spending too long uh filming the that protest so again there are a huge range of opinions on the these things can i can i just unpick one thing there tim which uh i don't fully understand because in my mind if you have freedom of expression but no right to protest 
then the freedom of expression is meaningless. If you have freedom of protest, to, to assemble and protest, then and, and not freedom of expression, then what are you protesting about? Because you need the expression uh, to come through your protest. So how, how do you disentangle them? Are you disentangling them in practice, i.e. operationally? It's very different when you're looking at people assembling and protesting versus when people are speaking. So it's an operational distinction. Or is it more a sort of um, uh, a, a conceptual separation that you're making, that, that the ability and the right to protest is conceptually very different to the right to free expression? It's uh, the, the former more, in my opinion, because, and this is, again, I'm bringing up the, the um, uh, buffer zones around abortion clinics, a classic example of a situation where a group wants to publicise their anti-abortion message they could go on the radio, on the TV. They could book a, a hall and have a debate. They can uh, they can publicise their cause pretty much any way they wish, as everybody is free to do. But they made the decision to stand outside a clinic where women are, are, are seeking uh, abortions. Now, is that appropriate? Is is that just opportunistic? Uh, are they misrepresenting their? Um, the, is it really a? a protest or is it uh, are they actually trying to change people's minds likewise you could say that um, the anti-monarchists who turned up after the queen died and there was a uh, large crowds up at the buckingham palace and it was quite it was somber is not the word it was um almost a febrile atmosphere of of sort mm. of sorrow mm. uh, and there were people there holding up not my king and abolish the monarchy signs you know is that the is that the day? Is that the time for them to make the point that they they can make that point three hundred and sixty five days a year in any way they wish? But that possibly will turn the public away from their you know, they're claiming that the the right to protest, the right to free speech. I get all that. Uh, the police made a few arrests in, on that occasion as much to protect those people from getting beaten up, uh, frankly by members of the public so and you saw at the coronation the just stop oil protesters were getting drowned out by people surrounding them shouting god save the king so on principle you could you could you could say there's a lot in common between protest and free speech but in practice i think there's there's quite a significant difference where the protest interferes with other people's rights to go about their business well, for every protest there's an op there's an opposition and sometimes they throw bricks at each other, and sometimes they yeah. they just mean that you can't you can't get. You know, and I would clarify, of course, the First Amendment does say peaceful assembly, so that that's yeah. critical. But it's one thing I'm still working through, Tim. I, I, I totally take on board the things you're saying. Well, peace, but peaceful protest very easy to to police, yeah. Tom, and uh, violent protest, riot, and uh, um, violent disorder. That's very easy to police too, because it's absolutely crystal clear the offences are being committed and what the police have to do about it. But in the middle, there's this huge area called direct action where it's not quite violent. Um, it's highly disruptive. So is it peaceful? You know, the people uh, graffitiing on the shell building during the Extinction Rebellion, is that, you know, that's unlawful, isn't it? That's criminal damage. So people are saying, well, what are you doing about it? Then that was allowed to happen day after day. People were getting dragged off tube trains and beaten up on the platform uh, because they were stopping trains running you know, again you, you have to draw the line somewhere and say okay extinction rebellion were a peaceful protest group but uh you know as i say it costs 37 million pounds to 
to police that. And it's sooner or later you've got to say, well, that's not proportionate. That's a good example. Right to protest. The right to protest falls down the scale of priorities quite quickly when uh, people are getting hurt, when buildings are getting graffitied, uh, and when the, the capital's suffering massive financial losses. So, yeah. What, what I what I loved about the coronation itself, and this is the historian in me, was the fact that you could have picked somebody up from any point in the last 1400 years from Europe, plonked them in the middle of the abbey, and they'd have understood exactly what was going on and what the meaning of that ceremony was. But likewise, I think if you'd, if you'd put somebody in Trafalgar Square from any point in English history from the last 350 years, they would have understood exactly what the political issue was of the Republic campaigners. And this is a, is a long part, veritable part of, of English and British political thought, this, this strain of, of, of Republican sentiment. And I think our, our conception of what a coronation is and the procession and, and the, 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 the formality of it is something that has evolved over time. And I, I, I don't think it's right to say that the coronation is something the Victorians invented and, and Britain doesn't really have any traditions beyond the 19th century. That's nonsense. But I do think our conception of, of the formality of the event has changed. I mean, I, I think if you went back to a coronation in Hanoverian England or something, it would have been pretty raucous um, inside and out. Um, so I, I, perhaps we worry too much about people shouting or being disputatious and about the sort of the, the commotion of people expressing their, their views about this issue. That said, Tom, your shocking, shocking republicanism uh, is going to see you cancelled from this podcast and Tim and I will be launching I pull, a petition I, I pull myself and email to your boss. You should move to Australia, uh, Tom, the current Australian prime minister who turned up at the coronation, funnily enough. He's a Republican, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if the next Australian referendum uh, decided to get rid of the monarchy because of the you know, the younger population voting and so on. So uh, there's a, there's somewhere for you to go and be happy with the... <laughs> Thank you. You sent me to Australia. I haven't stolen any bread, let me assure you. <laughs> <laughs> but listeners, if you never hear from Tom again, that's where he is. He's been cancelled <laughs> and sent to a penal I, I, I find it interesting... Ben, going back to your thing about history and the history of protest, actually, and and maybe we've become a lot less tolerant. I mean, the authorities have never in history been tolerant of, of protest, particularly, yeah. and often people get shot, people get killed uh, when protest goes wrong. But maybe as a populace, we've become less tolerant of the kinds of protests that made a huge difference back in the day, whether it's suffragettes, whether it's uh, the poll tax riots. I mean, I, I don't know whether the poll tax riots and would happen in the same way, or even the miners' strike. You know, they were, in recent history and in, and in history going further back, they're very, very uh, emotive, uh, violent protest that have then led to, obviously not in the case of the miners' strike, but definitely in the case of the poll tax riots, have led to change. And sometimes that change has been very, very good uh, ultimately, despite the cost it came at in terms of the, the shock to our society. And so I am fundamentally, I think as I look back, I, I fundamentally think protest has to, has to be a real part of who we are and what we are as a society and how we move forward as a society. I don't think anyone's disagreeing with that. But I just wonder maybe as a populace we become slightly less tolerant of the, the degree of protest that can really happen even in a relatively civilised society. I think that's right. And I think with the case of the coronation, it's because it, it, it's now a TV spectacle and it's, it's an advert for 
the United Kingdom and for Britishness. Um, and I think partly that's because we view the monarchy, well, I don't, but lots of people view the monarchy in very transactional terms. And one of the defences of monarchy uh, is about tourism, about people coming to see Buckingham Palace and um, about the economic boost that monarchy provides. I don't think that's a winning argument, personally. I don't think it's very persuasive, but it, it captures the utilitarian way in which people think about monarchy increasingly. Um, and so in that context, when the taxpayer's paying, a, you know, let's be honest, a pretty big bill for the coronation, we're getting this spectacular advert. And so I think that the tolerance for people to disrupt that, and this is only the second coronation that's been televised, obviously. Mm. Um, and so before that, you know, it wouldn't have mattered if there were people on a street corner shouting, making a bit of a fuss. Um, because no, no one would have seen it unless you happened to be stood on that exact spot. You might have read about it in a newspaper, but that would have been it. And you, probably you wouldn't have done. Um, whereas now it's this spectacle seen by the, all around the world. I worry we'll get to the point where we'll arrest Prince Louis for jumping around on his chair during the, uh, <laughs> during the coronation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I trust we're not there yet. <laughs> I think, Tom, your point... Your point about suffragettes and um, breaking the law in order to make positive change is a, a huge can of worms. I mean, you, I mean, we could have mm. you'd have three podcasts dedicated to that. Uh, we're not. I mean, we're not all free speech absolutists. I I think I, th I think free speech within the law is kind of where we're coming from. But there is there is bad law. The FSU spent a lot of time trying to change uh, and amend bad law. And also when the where the police overreach the law, we challenge that as well. Yeah, the suffragettes argument is an interesting one. They were expecting to get arrested when they chained themselves to the railings and they were arrested and it made it it made a difference because they were, you know, they were bringing it to the attention. The same thing with uh, the illegality of, of homosexuality and so on, you know, law breaking needed to, to proceed a proper change in the law. So it's a, it is a, you know, it's a, it's a, it is a can of worms, but free speech within the law is a general the way I approach um, my work with FSU because without the structure of law and policing, there is there is anarchy. So we need to make the make the best of the laws that are there to ensure that free speech is prioritised. That's a really really good point, Tim. That there is bad law, and that of course there's two parts of what we do at the Free Speech Union to help people. The first is to remind them of of how the law can be used to to pursue free speech aims and i think you know we think about our casework a lot of the time that's what we're doing is is saying look the equality act actually protects you particularly with gender critical issues um the equality act is a device that can be used now to say actually gender critical views are protected and the second is to campaign and uh, with our legislative affairs officer sam armstrong you know we are aiming to to impact uh, on what's happening as as bills go through the Commons, as bills go through the Lords, and get our members, who are extremely responsive to this, to get our members to write to their MPs and to equip them with the knowledge of what's going through and what they need to ask for of their MPs. So I think I think you know that immediately sort of ties a thread. I think Tim back to what we do at the Free Speech Union. Um, and I don't know what, what your perspectives have been since joining the case team as to how you found that from, from your old world into your new world, Tim, over the last year. Exactly a year, as we said earlier. 
Exactly, exactly yesterday. It's been fascinating, actually, because I've, there's been a lot of eyebrows raised about, well, why would someone who spent their, most of their life restricting the freedoms of others <laughs> as a police officer? Is it, Locking is them it, up. Not this quite is, this is a podcast, this is a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well done. <laughs> nice one. Uh, yeah, what, what, what's he doing now, espousing the other side of the argument? Well, I, I don't think there is a contradiction. I think, um, again, it comes back to free speech within the law. And my understanding of the the way the police have to act, the, the decisions the police have to make and how difficult it is for them to get it right, to get the balance right, generally puts me slightly closer to the police when it comes to the compromises or the, the balance to be struck than most people are, for various reasons, whether it be politics or people's experiences with the police tend to be negative because it's low-level sort of uh, speeding fights or whatever. But, yeah, so my... Uh, I'm not uh, de- defending the police in all cases, but I'm much more sympathetic to them than a lot of people are in the free speech world. I think that's that's just understandable. So I will I will make the make the case when I think the police have got it wrong, uh, but I'll also be uh, fair in my in my um, in my judgment, if you like. I've noticed that the, the example I remember when we were talk- was when we were talking at the time of the Queen's funeral about the protests in Scotland. Uh, I think against St Andrew, uh, St Andrew, against Prince Andrew when he was walking behind the um, there's a Freudian slip <laughs> <laughs> when he was walking behind the funeral cortege, and uh, obviously we were concerned, and as a group we were talking about you know people should be allowed to protest at what was happening, and I remember distinctly you saying, well, hang on, had the police not stepped in, he would have been kind of mobbed and strung up, you know, his own safety. Mm-hmm. And and those around him were at risk there, and it's it's for the police to um, to keep the king's peace, you know. He, he, he was actually he was on the uh, barriers, and he was dragged, uh, physically grabbed and dragged backwards. Uh, if you could see it on uh, YouTube, if you look it up, it's quite dramatic. He gets dragged away by a member of the public, and then the police get involved. He was arrested, and so was the person who assaulted him. So um, I'm not absolutely sure who got charged or if anyone got charged. But, yeah, there's another example. And, and, you know, people throwing eggs at the king, you know, that is, from a policing point of view, you can, you're just not going to tolerate that. Mm. Um, and you're not going to take any risk that someone who is really anti hasn't got something on them that they're going to use. Um, you know, you'll be, you may have a distant memory of the queen getting shot at yeah. um, when she was riding along in one of her um, processions. You know, so... I've got sympathy for the police uh, trying to make sure that everyone's safe from the beginning of the day to the end, which was a significant amount of time the other day. Yeah, let's cut them a bit of slack because I think if the news had gone the other way and it had gone all wrong, horribly wrong, uh, the police would be be flayed over it week after week. So they they can't win. And I'm not I'm not weeping for the police here. Please don't think I'm, uh, <laughs> you know. But I get I, I get how difficult it is because I've been there and I um I, I'll cut them a bit more slack than perhaps most would i've only seen the the sort of security operation um around the monarch in full swing once when i was a student and the late queen elizabeth um came to uh open a building at exeter um and just seeing that as a 20 year old the absolutely gigantic um police security presence how intricate everything was 
um it, it was just astonishing so I, I i get completely tim what you're you're saying that you know the huge pressure uh, on the police for the coronation and it's it's a bit of a lose-lose whatever they do um so I, I don't envy them that position. Uh, it's just regrettable that I think things unfolded as they did on on Saturday morning in that respect. Well, there was a wonderful clip um, when the Prince and Princess of Wales were on a walkabout around Soho and they were on Frith Street, I think, with police presence everywhere. I don't know if you saw this, Tim. And this sort of gentleman uh, was off to get his prescription from Boots and... <laughs> managed to sort of bump into Kate, walk past the <laughs> Prince of Wales before anyone noticed. And then he just picked up his bag and said, I'm, I'm trying to get my prescription just from around the corner. Uh, and, of course, your point about you never quite know what, what someone's carrying. I think he was just carrying some aspirin or whatever it might be. But in that case, that was very fortunate. I just wonder, given all of that effort, how do, the, how do those sorts of folks slip, slip by? But it was a very amusing moment, um, which went all over social media. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I dare say we'll be returning to this topic in the weeks and months ahead. Um, any final thoughts? Thanks again for making me your first guest. I'm, uh, it's my anniversary treat. Happy anniversary to you, Tim. And uh, Tom, off to your penal colony. We will be having an active attainder passed against you. I'm in Australia next week. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, we have something exciting next week, don't we? So you, you'll be broadcasting yeah. from your Australian penal colony. And uh, we have a guest who we're actually speaking to in a couple of days. And the episode will be coming out next week, uh, who is Matt Johnson, who's just written a uh, really, really interesting book about the legacy of Christopher Hitchens uh, and uh, what it says about the modern left and, and, uh, and what his legacy uh, means for saving the left from the censorious woke strain that seems to have captured it looking forward to that but uh, thank you again tim really good to have you as our first guest and uh, we'll have you back again soon i'm sure 